0: Greetings. So we are dealing with First Peter and we just looked at in our first episode the review of the entire book of Peter. If you haven't yet looked at it, please do go to the podcast and check it out. And I would really appreciate if you could also share the podcast so that many people can get to learn. It is very important to learn the Bible for what it really says rather than for what other people would want to use it for because many preachers have come and as we look at this series we will address such preachers who have come to use the bible for their own benefit. so i would encourage you to share this with as many people as you can but as well also use it for your spiritual benefit now what i'm going to do for chapter one Today we are addressing chapter one, and we are going to use um, the, the, the expository method of it, a verse by verse kind of thing. I'm going to start by mentioning an outline of how we are going to go all about. We're going to look at the customary salutation from verse one to one, verse one to two. We're going to look at the chosen of the new birth from verse three to chapter two, verse ten. We're going to look at the the challenge to new behavior from chapter 2 verse 11 to chapter 3 verse 7. We're going to look at the caution that is put for new persecution from chapter 3 verse 8 to 4 to chapter 4 verse 19. And then we'll come down and finally look at the charge that is given with new responsibility from chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, hereby concluding with chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. So that is the outline of how our entire exposition will go like. So without wasting much of your time, let us go right ahead and begin chapter 1 of First Peter. Chapter 1 of First Peter. And I want us to really dive into this, like I'll be going in depth with this, but not really how I would do it in a pulpit. Because I have got more time in a pulpit when I get to address issues like this. I can preach through the book of First Peter in six or eight months, you know. It can go that far. I have enough time, but I'm going to do the best I can with the time that is given here. To, to do that. So from this 1 to 6a, let me read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen to, according to foreknowledge or according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. And I end scripture reading. God bless the reading of this word. Now, years ago, radio Bible teacher and preacher J. Vernon McGee, who is a doctor, spoke at Dallas Theological Seminary Chapel service uh, there. Dr. McGee told them he had been diagnosed with a very serious form of lung cancer with a very low cure rate. And having often... Visited those about to undergo surgery, Doctor McGee he confessed uh, that his being rolled into surgery felt quite a lot different than his accompanying somebody into surgery. And God granted Doctor McGee a most unusual cure, like prolonging to his his life and his ministry to a number of years later. Why am I bringing this out? You see, our perspective changes considerably when we become the participant rather than the observer. To some degree, circumstances do shape our perspective. But our perspective has everything to do with the way we respond to our circumstances. In recent years, what culture has done is taking a very unhealthy turn embracing a perspective which predisposes rather our collapse under life's adverse circumstances rather than causing us to persevere through them. Now the essential of this new perspective may be summed up in the word victim and what I want to term this chapter, chapter 1 is victim or victor. No longer are we responsible for our attitudes and our actions when we have been wronged or abused. We are now victims. That's the culture of today. Whatever happened to, uh, whatever happened, whatever gets to happen is no longer our fault. It is no longer that we are responsible for it. No, 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 no. We are not responsible for for, for anything or for the way we choose to respond. Uh -uh. That is the culture today. That is what we have been taught today. Now scripture makes it very clear that Christians will be the recipients of unjust treatment because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the holy lives we are to live in a sinful world. Now while the Bible promises that we have and we will experience innocent suffering, for the cause of Christ, it nowhere nowhere in scripture speaks of our being victims in the contemporary sense of the word. But what we see in the Bible is it speaking of us as victors. So, victory or victim? Now, Peter introduces the subject of innocent suffering for Christ's sake in verse 6 of chapter 1 but he will not mention the trials and testing of our faith until he has first set down the essential truths which should shape our perspective on suffering. These truths are set down by Peter in verse 1 to 5 of chapter 1. So our study begins by determining the recipients of Peter's epistle as indicated in verse one. We will then explore the source of our salvation in verse 2. Verse 3, verse 4 focus on our future hope of which we are assured due to the salvation God accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. From verse 5, we will be reassured of our security in Christ and the certainty of experiencing those things awaiting us at the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Close attention to this text is going to help us learn from Peter why we who trust in Jesus can never be considered victims. We are victors. We are overcomers. Praise be to God. So, let's go in and look at the recipients of Peter's first epistle in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, one could quickly conclude Peter wrote this epistle to Jewish believers who had been scattered abroad. James's introductory greeting in his book is similar to Peter's introduction. Look at James 1 verse 1. James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Now, Peter, after all, was the apostle to the Jews, while Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? But on the contrary, seeing that I have been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised. Just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for the, for, for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. That's Paul speaking in Galatians chapter 2 verse 7 to 8. Other verses in First Peter also strongly indicate a broader readership than only Jewish believers, and these statements seem difficult to apply directly to Jewish believers, like verse 14 and the, up to verse 16 of chapter 1 of First Peter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves, also in your behavior because it is written you shall be holy for I am holy Look at chapter 2 verse 10 for you were once not a people But now you are the people of God look at chapter 4 verse 3 to 5 for the time already past is sufficient For you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sens- a Sensuality lust, drunkenness Carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give account to whom who to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So While Peter's words in all these verses are addressed to individual saints, they are also given instructions concerning the conduct of the members of the church. Specifically, Peter provides instruction to the elders and younger men in the church. We find in the scriptures no such thing as a Jewish or a Gentile church. It's not there. The church of Christ is one body, made up of Jews and Gentiles, without any distinction or dividing war between them. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians 2 verse 11 to 22 if you want to read more about that. Now Peter writes not to one church or even to the saints in a small geographical area. He writes to those saints in five Roman provinces. Now while specific cities are unnamed, Peter's epistle would surely include the churches in the seven cities of Asia to whom the book of Revelation is written to. These churches were neither Jewish nor Gentile, a clear Jewish presence and influence did exist in all the churches just as there was a Gentile presence as well. Okay, That's how it was in the synagogues as well with the Gentiles, they are called proselytes or God-fearers in the Jewish culture. And Peter writes then to the saints that are scattered throughout the Roman world, clearly reflecting the change in Peter concerning Jews and Gentiles. And this change was dramatically brought home to him in the events of Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. And then later, they are reinforced by Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 up to 21 after Peter fell back into his old ways under the pressure from Jewish saints. Clearly, his epistle is written not just to Jewish saints or Gentile saints, but to all saints who make the one church of Jesus Christ, including you and I. Peter writes in obedience to the command given by the Lord Jesus himself. In Luke 22, verse 32, when you once have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So, just as Peter stumbled when faced with suffering for Christ's sake at the time of his arrest and trial and then was strengthened, so now he would also write to those facing suffering who need to be strengthened. He can offer strength and comfort from his own experiences. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians will, will express Peter's ministry better than I would ever. I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 to 7 to hear what Paul says about Peter's ministry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the suffering of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, of if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. That best describes Peter's ministry right here. Then we see from chapter 1 verse 1c one to 2, the source of our salvation there, and it reads, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure." What are we seeing here? Those who deny the doctrine of the Trinity have difficulty with this and a number of other texts. <laughs> Sorry. For they clearly speak of three members of the Godhead, all of whom are involved in the work of salvation. The Holy Spirit is strategically placed between God the Father and God the Son. Each member of the Trinity plays a distinct role in the salvation of the saint. The Father chooses those who will be saved, right? We find Peter's words consistent with the teaching of Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to 4. Christians do not differ so much on whether God chose us, Mm -mm. but over the basis of that choice. In fact, some fail to understand the significance of the word foreknow, right? Supposing that it means only to know about something in advance. Now the word here does have this meaning as in Acts chapter 26 verse 5 in 2nd Peter chapter 3 verse 17 but when Peter uses the word foreknowledge here, he speaks of God's choice of us. Apart from anything we would or could do based solely on his sovereignty. Alright? In First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, what Peter speaks of Christ who was foreknown before the foundation of the world is that he's not saying God knew about Jesus, but that God chose our Lord to die on the cross of Calvary before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve were created, before the first sin was committed. Peter made a similar statement in his great sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and for knowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and Put to death. To know can mean to know about. But it can also mean to choose. And God knew Abraham. That is, he chose Abraham. Now Genesis verse 18 to 19 is is there to to affirm this. For I have chosen, literally known him, who Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So, to foreknow is to choose ahead of time, right? So, Paul uses foreknow to speak of God's sovereign choice in eternity past. The father chooses those whom he would serve in eternity past. And it is the Holy Spirit who does what? Sanctifies the elect, drawing them to faith in Christ. Now I understand the view here very well. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse 13 says, But we should have or we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God has chosen you from the beginning of sal- for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So, when Nicodemus sought out the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior told him he must be born again. And that is the unseen work of the Holy Spirit. Before our Lord's crucifixion, He told the disciples it was necessary and better for them to depart and for the Holy Spirit to come. For him, sorry, to depart. And for the Holy Spirit to come. Why? It was the Spirit who would convict men of sin. Righteousness and judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit sets the saints apart to God by drawing them to faith in Jesus. While the Holy Spirit is also involved in our sanctification, the emphasis here is on the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing us to Christ. If the sanctification of us as believers, in view of God's word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit would more logically have been introduced after rather than before the saving work of Christ. Peter then moves from the choice of the Father and the sanctifying of the Holy Spirit to the contribution of Christ's shed blood by which we are cleansed and forgiven, right? So Peter's words indicate the Holy Spirit's sanctification as particular effects. The Spirit's work brings about obedience Which results in being sprinkled with Christ's blood. And the sprinkling of Christ's blood is definitely an Old Testament image, referring, being referred here by the author of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 to 28, which reads, Therefore, even in the first covenant was not, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the cows and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. According to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed by blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. For Christ did not enter a holy made place with hands merely copy of the true one but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of god for us nor was it that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters into the holy place year by year with blood not his own otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now at once and at, uh, at once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice himself of himself. And inasmuch as it uh, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this face judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time. For salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him hebrews chapter 11 verse 28 by faith he kept the passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he destroyed the firstborn must not touch them chapter 12 verse 24 of hebrews says and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood, or the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, if I understand Peter's words correctly here, he is describing our salvation as the work of the Trinity, spelled out sequentially in the order actually achieved in time. The Father chooses us in eternity past for salvation. The Holy Spirit drew us to faith in Christ, regenerating us, illuminating our minds so as to make the gospel clear, convicting us of sin and baptizing us into the body of Christ. The result of the Spirit's ministry is obedience to the gospel's call, trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation and being cleansed By his shed blood. Do you get that? The obedience in view here is not so much the obedience which follows salvation as an evidence that we are a living faith or we have a living faith, but obedience of faith itself, which results in in salvation. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, when Jesus was asked, what men must do, he gave a very clear answer here. In John chapter 6, verse 27 to 29, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. They said therefore to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Simply put, right? Peter is telling us that salvation is a work of God. It is the work of God. It is the work in which we are also involved. It is a work in which you participate. But the final analysis of it is salvation is God's work. Whatever role we play, we do so because God has allowed us to come to Him through His Son Jesus Christ. All right? In verse 3 to 4, we see a hope of our salvation. Remember, we're talking about the apostle hope here. And this is partly a blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter's words in verse 3 indicate that he is writing more here than simple instruction to give comfort and assurance in terms of suffering. He is also indicating the basis for praise towards God. The the, the praise towards God. Blessed be in the New American Standard Bible is blessed or praise be in the NIV. One cannot help but recall the words of Job when he was told of the catastrophe which had struck him, especially the death of his children. The famous Job 1.21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Peter first praises God for the cause and the motivation of our salvation. God himself is the cause of our salvation. He caused us to be born again. That's verse 3. This he did out of his great mercy. It is not our worthiness. It is not by our desirability. It is his mercy which is the reason for our salvation. Mercy is not an ego-inflating word here. It conveys that the object of mercy Has pity on the recipient of mercy. And while the one showing mercy is praiseworthy, this is the picture that Peter is trying to to, to bring across. Secondly, peter further praises god because of what we have been saved to god has caused us to be born again right we have been born again to a living hope our hope is a living hope because jesus not only died for our sins but rose from the grave so that we too are assured of raising with him christ's resurrection is the assurance that we have a future and that the future is our hope as Christians, and this should be our desirable expectation. Christ's death and re- resurrection accomplished something, an inheritance for which every saint waits for. Christ's resurrection from the dead assures us God was well pleased when Christ's atoning work was done. And since his resurrection is the basis for and assurance of our own resurrection, we know that we will enter into God's eternal blessings. All Old Testament saints died without entering into the promised blessings, but they were assured they would experience them after their death. Hebrews 11 verse verse 13 tells us that all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but have seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So all Old Testament saints like Abraham had a resurrection faith, which enabled them to hope for blessings after death. Okay. Okay. So, through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have a future inheritance. This inheritance will be ours because Christ died. But it will be ours if we have died unless, of course, we are alive at the second coming of Christ, right? Because our hope of future blessings rests in the finished work of our Lord. It is a certain hope. Peter gives a three-fold description of this hope it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it will not fade away. William McDonald' says it is a death proof, sin proof, and time proof. Praise be to God. So, our inheritance, people of God, will not deteriorate over time. Perishable fruits are tucked away in the back of our refrigerator and may be forgotten until a a scent begins to get your attention. But our inheritance is not like perishable food. Neither is our inheritance subject to defilement. Someone may try to reserve a piece of cake or maybe defiling it so that no one else wants it. But even sin and impurity can never defile our future inheritance. And praise be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for that. Thirdly, what we see here is our inheritance will not fade away. Time will not diminish its existence. Like things that wear out, no cause its desirability to diminish. With anything new, time causes its glory to fade. But our inheritance, unlike the glow of Moses' face in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, never fades but an assurance, The blessing which constitutes our future hope are absolutely certain for they don't diminish over time. They are also being kept for us. We need to not worry about contingencies which might nullify our hope. Our blessing in Christ has been secure. Which brings me to verse 5. The security of our salvation who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now let me ask you a question here. What could possibly keep us from enjoying the blessings of our future hope? It could not be the loss or devaluation of these blessings because we have just seen That these blessings are imperishable They cannot be defiled And they will never fade away So it is possible that our blessings will not fail But we will That's where the problem is If verses 3 and 4 assure us That the blessings of our salvations are secure Verse 5 assures, assures, assures us That we are secure Our blessings are reserved for us in heaven And we are preserved for them on earth Did you hear me? We are protected by the power of God. So God is our refuge and strength, right? He is our strong tower, right? His power protects us, right? And because He is all-powerful, nothing can cause us to lose that which God has provided, promised, preserved. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39, very theologically sound. Put it in this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in the days or in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's sealed, people of God. We are protected by the power of God. We are also protected through faith. The power of God is provided for our protection, but God provides and requires faith as the means through which God's power is appropriated. So while Peter was going to fail, Jesus warned, as Jesus warned, the Savior had prayed for him that his faith would not fail. That's simple. Peter would fail. Peter would fall. But he could not fall completely. That's the same with us. He was protected by the power of God for a salvation that is yet to be revealed. So, let's wrap up our first part of chapter 1. Peter's introductory words here have considered that we have considered in this lesson serve as a message from God to us and I want to sum them up with essential importance of observations. My first observation and that which you can apply into your lives is that we may praise God and rejoice because our salvation is secure. The first words of verse 3 are words of praise, Blessed be your praise and rejoicing Are directed towards God. The words of this epistle and of these verses should be the basis and motivation for our worship and our rejoicing in the Lord. Second, our salvation is secure because from start to finish, it is the work of the sovereign God, a work of mercy and grace, and not of human merit. When Jesus warned Peter of his upcoming denial, he adamantly protested, Right? he assured that the Lord that though all these might deny him, he would not. Peter trusted in himself when he assured the Lord that he would not fail him. We know the extent of Peter's failure, but out of his failure Peter came to understand that it was not his faithfulness, but God's, that assured him of entering into the blessings of the kingdom of God. Peter's words in our text underscore the basics or the basis of our security. Our salvation is the work of the Lord and not the work of man. God's salvation involves the work of the Trinity. The Father chooses in eternity past, the Spirit sets apart to salvation, causing us to trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the shedded blood of Jesus Christ is God's means for cleansing us from the guilt of our sins of God. As Hebrews 12 says, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. God's salvation is not based upon our merit and good works, but it was motivated by his mercy, directed towards us in our pitiable estate. Third, our salvation is from sin and to a future inheritance that is in heaven and is secure. Fourth, our salvation is secure for we are kept by the power of God. Fifth, salvation is the vantage point from which we must view suffering. Sixth And finally, Peter teaches us that saints are not victims but victors in their suffering. The victim mindset has become dominant in our society. We look to our past, we look to the abuse of others or to the genes passed on to us from our parents as a cause of our sin and suffering. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. peter turns our eyes towards god and towards the shed blood of jesus christ in whom we have not only forgiveness of sin but victory in christ we are not saved merely to cope with life people of god we are not called to be what to be just saved and cope up with what life is bringing at us no 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 We are called to be conquerors in Christ Jesus. We are overcomers, especially in the trials and tribulations of life. Let us believe and behave accordingly. The mindset Peter calls from every saint is demonstrated by his fellow apostle Paul. Paul expressed the security of the saint in the midst of suffering based upon his confidence in the Savior in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guide what I have entrusted to him until that day. May we be able to say amen to these words, because we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, and also because we view our suffering from a standpoint of the salvation that God has provided and now protects and preserves in His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you very much for being with me in this particular segment of chapter 1 from verse 1 to 5. We are going to next look at the the second part of chapter 1. Thank you.